60 miles south of San Francisco is a beautiful valley with oaks that sits at the foothill of the Santa Cruz Mountains. Gorgeous place. And that's where I grew up. And on a typical sunny day, summer day, I would grab a friend and I'd head into those mountains. And there we would play in secret ponds. And there we would catch all kinds of critters. And there we would lay on grassy knolls and look over the Santa Clara Valley. And as a result of that being my playground growing up, I learned some of the secrets of those mountains. I learned where the elusive ringneck snake, many of you have never seen, I learned where it lives and how you can catch it. I learned, <laughs> yeah, I learned that if you're quiet, deer will come very close, even close enough to eat out of your hand. And I learned that sometimes the silence in a forest can be strangely deafening. In the past five weeks, we've been going through a series called Abide, and the driving question behind this series is, what does it look like to maintain a rich, sustained connection with God? In John 15, Jesus tells his followers, he invites his followers to abide in him, and what Jesus is saying is he wants them to enter into a life of a deep, sustained, dependent connection with God. So in the last five weeks... Pastor Josh has been taking us through several different elements that are part of this life of abiding. And so we've talked about several things. We've talked about the need of removing distractions and the importance of creating a secret place where we go to be alone with God. We've talked about the importance of meditating on Scripture, and we've talked about the importance of prayer, and we've talked about the importance of recognizing God's voice. And so this morning, I want to add another important element and learning how to maintain a deep connection with God. And we actually heard it this morning. It was just read. And it has to deal with connecting with God in creation, being able to hear God in creation. As Psalm 19 tells us, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. So right off the bat, Psalms, Psalm 19, is telling us that we can have a profound experience of hearing God by virtue of creation, which then immediately raises the question, how in the world does that happen? How does creation speak? And here we see in this verse here several things about how creation speaks. First, we learn that it speaks continuously. Day to day, it utters speech. Night to night, it reveals knowledge. Every day, all day, every night, all night, day and night, night and day, continuously, it never ends. It tells us that it pours out speech. That word there is naba in Hebrew. It means to gush forth. Creation is not whispering. Creation is loquacious. You ever met somebody that's just gushing forth with something to say? You know, they run in and they're just gushing forth. It pours forth speech. And then there's this really interesting phrase in verse 3. 
There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. The Old Testament scholar Robert Alter writes, Day-to-day breathes utterance, and night-to-night pronounces knowledge. There is no utterance, and there are no words, and their voice is never heard. That seems strange. There's, There's no speech, no words, no voice that is heard, yet their voice goes out into all the world. What is happening here? It's a little bit mysterious what's happening. It's a little bit marvelous what's happening. It's a very strange thing. The visible is becoming vocal, vocal, and seeing is being experienced as hearing. I've spent a lot of time thinking about that in the last two weeks. What's going on with that? I think that we can get some help from Gerald Manley Hopkins. Gerald Manley Hopkins, in his poem, As Kingfisher Catches Fire, speaks about the kingfisher, which is that little hummingbird-looking fish. It actually, it's a hummingbird that catches fish. It's got this brilliant fire-like breast. And then he goes on to talk about the nature of the dragonfly's wings, which flitter and shine a lot like fire as well, and then stones that are dropped into a well, and then the nature of a string. When you pluck a string, strings are interesting things by their very nature. When you pluck them, they create a unique sound. And then bells. You know, when bells just go back and forth, you see the arc of the bell. Listen to what Gerald Manley Hopkins says. As kingfisher catches fire, as you get that little, that little breast that you see when, wow, look at that, the color of that. Dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over rim in rounds wells stones ring, like each tucked string tells, each hung bell's bow swung finds tongue to find out broad its name. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same, deals out that being indoors each one dwells. Selves goes itself. Myself, it speaks and spells, crying, what I do is me, for that I came. What I do is me, for that I came. What is he saying here? He's saying that these different things that are part of the world bring glory to God by virtue of being themselves. Isn't that an amazing thought? How does a rock bring glory to God. It brings glory to God innately by being a rock. Right? And a kingfisher glorifies God by being a kingfisher. What a marvelous bird. I want to show you two loafers I know. (laughs) These are our cats, Mila and Nala. They're sisters. They're not always so happy together. Sometimes they're very loving. Sometimes they fight, just like real sisters. And like all cats, they spend between 12 and 16 hours a day sleeping. Half of that time, uh, when they're awake, is spent grooming themselves. They don't pay any rent, believe me. (laughs) But they're really good at being cats. And they glorify God in their catness. There's something about their catness. I mean, cats are just strange creatures. And I know there's lots of opinions here about cats. 
Be very careful. We own two that we adore. But what I'm saying here <laughs> is that all things in creation bring glory to God innately by virtue of what they do. And so, creation speaks mysteriously and loquaciously and continuously and innately, and then also it speaks universally. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. From the smallest flower to the largest rainforest, from the most minute creature in a micro-ecosystem to the entire universe as a whole, Creation's pluriform and multi-leveled, layered voice is heard, and, and nothing escapes it. And that's why, by the way, he talks about the sun, and nothing escapes its heat. We're going to pick up the sun a little later in the sermon. But nothing escapes this constant proclamation, declaration. And then finally, it speaks worshipfully. The image here is of all of creation is like a congregation that comes together to, worships, to worship, declaring the glory of God and proclaiming his handiwork and pouring forth speech. The voices go forth. Creation is a place in which every day there is this giant, unending concert of praise, which this is my father's world. Wow, what a great rendition of this is my... I actually ordered up this is my father's world. That's the kind of worship team we have, right? And they pulled it off. Beautiful. This is my father's world, and to my listening ears, all nature sings, and around me rings the music of the spheres. So what does it do? Uh, um, well, how does it speak? It speaks universally and worshipfully and innately. Which then raises the question, well, okay, it speaks that way. Those are all adverbs, but what does it say? As it declares the glory of God, what is the content of its message? Romans 1.20 says, Ever since the creation of the world, God's invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that he has made. So creation is telling us about God. It's telling us about the primacy of God. Nehemiah 9.6, you are the Lord, you alone. You've made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that's on it, the seas and all that's in them. You give life to all of them and the heavenly hosts bow down before you. See, the Bible teaches that everything that exists is contingent. That means it's not necessary. There's only one thing that's necessary, and that's God. And that everything depends upon God. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. God has been there from forever. From eternity past to eternity future, God has always been there. God is primary. Another word for primary is holy. Holy means unique, set apart, special. I know we like to think that we're unique, Margaret Mead said, always remember that you're unique, just like everybody else. There's nothing like going to a concert, by the way, or like a giant stadium, and like, it'll just take away your uniqueness as you're waiting in line with 200 people, right, to go to the bathroom or whatever, you know, or for the hot dog. There's really nothing unique in this world. The only thing, if you really want to get down to the only thing that is unique is God. 
God is utterly and totally and entirely other. Everything, the most axiological category, everything breaks down into one of two categories, either creator or creation. That is the most fundamental category of existence. And in those categories, we fit in the creation category, which means that in a certain sense, we have more in common with a salamander than with God. A little reality check there, right? So creation reminds us of the holiness of God, that God is totally other, which, by the way, the very first temptation which came in the garden was, you can be just like God. Let's break down that creator-creation distinction because the evil one knew that is axiological to getting it right. Creation tells us about the power of God. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Isaiah 40, 26. And by the way, when you look at God's power, it can give you great confidence. You know, when you look at God's primacy, it gives you reverence, a deep sense of reverence. But when you look at God's power, it can give you confidence because what do we know as Christians? The strangest thing, we know that the God who put the mountains here, these San Gabriels, is our Heavenly Father. It's, it's just amazing. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. That's good help. If you're looking for help, the one who made heaven and earth, not bad help. Tells us about God's faithfulness. How blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. I love that hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. You look at the seasons, you look at the constant repeated uh, processes within ecosystems that the sun every day rises. There's constant cycles in nature, and they are there to remind us that we have a God who will always show up. And when we see this, it gives us great peace. It reminds us of the wisdom of God. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom. God knows how to get things done. <laughs> Believe me, I mean, you know, there's so many things in the world we, have, we, we don't know how to, you know, we've worked really hard to create a hand, try to make a hand, a mechanical hand, right? I mean, there's all these, you know, we're, we're going to get to the book of Job a little later in the sermon, but I love this part in Job where God's like, hey, you know, hippopotamus, how do you make one of those, Job? Go ahead, whip one up. Let's go. Job's like, sorry, God, don't know how to make a hippo. God has tremendous street smarts. He knows how to deliver. The book of Proverbs is all based on the wisdom of God in creation. Look at the ant sluggard. You can learn a thing or two here, right? So God's wisdom leads us to amazement, but also grants us wisdom if we pay attention. Creation tells us about God's goodness. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. Which, by the way, these pictures, I didn't grab these off the internet. These are my pictures. Some of you are judging me. I can see it. <laughs> I might not get any Gatorade, but come on. These are my pictures, all right? This is from Hawaii. Remember Hawaii, babe? Yeah. So God is so good. And 
you know, there are so many delights in the natural world. And those delights, I mean, by the way, we're spoiled right here. Like, we just look out, as soon as we walk out the door, right? These San Gabriels, which are so glorious, are just constantly beaming down on us, the goodness of God, right? And we see these delights there to draw us into thanksgiving. Genesis 1, and God saw that all that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. It was very good. And then, God's fullness. This was from the super balloon. Remember it? Great, amazing thing that happened a few years back. O Lord, how many are your works and wisdom you've made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. You know, when you read Genesis 1, a lot of things catch our eyes. I know immediately, you know, post-enlightenment, you know, post-scientific revolution, we're like, okay, how do I fit all this together in modern scientific jargon? You know, one of the things that we should do is just go back and pay attention. And one of the words, one of the phrases that repeats over and over in Genesis 1 is everything, all, every. God creates every living thing with which the waters teem, and every winged bird and all creatures that move on the ground. In other words, God's creation is not minimalist. You know, God could have created one kind of plant. I don't know. Let's say it was the Texas privet. It's a, it's a, uh, it's just a green, it makes a great shrub, okay? Okay? And that's it. There's just green shrubs everywhere. Wherever you go, the same green shrub. All right? Uh, you know, God could have made it one kind of animal. You know, we're just going to have kangaroos. That's all we're going to get. That's all you get. The kangaroo God, really? That's it. Kangaroos. You know? God created this world with super abundant excess. You know, he made all kinds of birds. We're still discovering them, all kinds. I mean, I don't know why he made all those insects, but there's so many insects. God must be into insects. He shows us genius. Those things have no brains, and they survive. I was looking at one the other day. I'm like, that thing doesn't even, it can't compute anything, and it lives its whole life, and it flourishes. Like, how's that possible? You know, why did God create the human eye? such that it can distinguish between 7 and 10 million colors? Why did God create the Milky Way galaxy where there are around 300 billion stars, which we just read, he has a name for each one, and there are perhaps 2 trillion galaxies. So there's only 300, 300 billion in our galaxy, and there's 2 trillion galaxies. I mean, you know, I don't, mm -mm, can't go there. Overload. Why does God do this? Jonathan Edwards argues that the perfect fullness of God is carried forth in creation with this propensity to overflow with fullness. And when we see the fullness in creation, it should evoke wonder. We could keep going, but one more. Creation speaks of God's sovereignty. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. This is by, by Mammoth. We have these spires, incredible spires. God just said, I'm just going to put some spires right there. What if we decided we were going to build those spires? How much work would it take? And God's just going to throw these spires. What if we were to try to create this scene? So this God is like, absolutely Sovereign. 
absolutely self-contained, doesn't need anything, creates as he desires, sovereign. This should evoke the fear of God, a word we don't use very much, very common word in the Old Testament. It means a deep sense, a deep, strong sense of how much we need to honor God, respect God. So creation is constantly speaking forth about God. It's constantly talking about God's glory, his weightiness, all of his facets. But you know what? As soon as that happens, it starts reflecting on us. John Calvin famously said, our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But as these are connected together by many ties, it's not easy to determine which of the two precedes and gives birth to the other. It's a chicken and egg thing. As soon as you say something about God, it immediately informs you about yourself. These two truths are deeply interconnected. By the way, that's the first line in Calvin's Institutes. And so we can't hear these things about God without immediately it framing us. And how does it frame us? Well, one thing is it humbles us. We are not the center of the universe. For some of you narcissists this morning, this comes as a great shock. <laughs> Me included. Part of the human condition is we tend to think of ourselves as the center of the universe. You can be God. No, you can't be God. You can never be God. You will never be God. You will never be the center of the universe. God reserves that spot. It humbles us. Humanism is the idea that human beings are the most important creatures in the universe. Maybe I should say unmitigated humanism, because Christianity holds human beings in high esteem. But unmitigated humanism believes there's no higher creature than human beings. We are the highest, the center of the universe, and nothing is greater than us. And then you hear about the God of the Bible, and you are humbled. It tells us, on the other hand, that we are artwork. We are God's handiwork. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Now think about this for a second. I, I read while I was preparing for this message that if we were to boil down our bodies into their fundamental chemical components, uh, which is primarily oxygen, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, calcium, and, and phosphorus, our bodies are worth roughly 160 on the market right now. 160 bucks. Okay. Some of you are pretty hard up for cash. I can see you thinking like, how do I? No. Okay. But that's a very rude way to think about our value. That'd be like looking at Michelangelo's David and then pricing out how much Italian marble is. Because you're not taking into account the master artist who has touched that marble. And every single one of us has been touched, and we are all the handiwork of God made in God's image as a reflection of God. Every human being you meet is God's artwork. When we see this picture of who God is in creation, it leads us to worship. We are not creator, we are creation. And all of creation, what it does is it worships. It is part of our very being. It's part of fundamentally who we are. We are made to worship. There is nothing closer to getting at our purpose for existence than worshiping our creator. Jesus said, I tell you, if these stones, if these people were silent, the very stones would cry out. It's like the rest of creation needs to make up for us if we don't follow through, right? 
It immediately informs us about our allegiance, uh, where our allegiances should lie. We are not our own. God created us. He made us. He gave us everything we have, and therefore we owe everything to God. God deserves our utmost allegiance and thanksgiving and praise and love. And that's why Jesus said the first and foremost commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then it reminds us that all of life is gift. None of it needed to happen. There didn't need to be San Gabriels. There didn't need to be, you know, a Verna or a Robert, you know, a Jonah, a Kenya. That would be a rough one, but it didn't need to be a Kenya. Every single one of us in here, we are all gifts, and all of life is gift because it didn't need to be. It's not necessary. That's a powerful way to view the world, isn't it? Even if I wasn't a Christian, I would want to invent certain aspects of it so I could see things the way Christians see things. All of life is gift. And then finally, it reminds us about grace. You know, our relationship with God is based solely and utterly on grace. In the ancient Greek world, within paganism, you had finite gods. These gods would get angry, lustful, they'd fight, they'd squabble, they had needs. So in the pagan world, you were constantly trying to get the gods on your side. You had to trade with the gods. You had to create things that would get the gods going, and these poor gods needed all your help. And when Paul goes to talk to the pagans in Acts chapter 17, what does Paul emphasize? He emphasizes that God is sovereign and he doesn't need anything. If God made everything and needs nothing, how in the world do you enter into a trade with God? Mm -mm. You're at a loss. You can't do it. It's impossible to enter into a quid pro quo relationship with a being who has no needs. Said another way, grace is found not first and foremost on the cross, it's found first and foremost in creation. Our very existence in relationship with God is fundamentally one that requires grace. Okay, so we've seen how creation speaks. We've seen what it says. But the question is, well, if all this is happening every day, you know, if I wake up and there's this giant chorus of creation, why is it so hard for me to hear it? Elizabeth Barrett Browning says, Earth's crammed with heaven, and every common bush a fire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes, and the rest just sit around and pluck blackberries. <laughs> Why are most of us plucking blackberries? Why is that? Well, I think it's because it takes faith. It takes faith. In fact, uh, Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. Apostles' Creed says, oh, this is how to listen. Apostle Creed says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Right off the bat, it's a belief. It's something we've got to have faith for. And by the way, sometimes that's hard. Because I've given a lot of really beautiful pictures. We've got the poppies, we've got the mountains and the lakes, and there's so much good in creation, but sometimes creation has a dark side. You know, why does creation sometimes 
seem to be filled with tooth and claw? Why are there earthquakes and tsunamis? You know, the book of Job kind of picks up this theme. There you have William Blake's picture of Job and his accusing friends. You know, in chapter 3, when the weight of Job's losses set in, Job has seven curses that echo the seven days of creation. In other words, Job's pain immediately makes it difficult for him to see the world as created by God. Why were there knees to receive me? Why were there breasts for me to suck? Why was I born? We cannot rail against the circumstances of our existence and not have it impact our view of creation. And Job, Job demands an answer, an explanation. There's this funny part where he says, you know, I would take God to court, but I can't get anybody to try the case. Who's going to sit in judgment on God? I'm, I'm, I know I could win. I've got a case against God. But how could this even work? What do I do? And then, you know, you have all this dense Hebrew poetry where every single one of these friends shows up and tells, says the same thing over and over again, which is, Job, you must ascend. You're not being honest. There's no reason this could be here. And then in Job 38, 1 to 4, 42, 6, God answers Job in what is unquestionably the most comprehensive creation theology in the Old Testament. And God takes Job on a tour of the universe and Job was demanding answers, and then God says, you know, I'm going to ask for a few answers here. Job, let's start talking about how you're going to make snow, since you're an expert. Let's talk about weather systems. Job, let's talk about making the hippopotamus. How are you going to do that? And God's point is, is that, Job, you're not really in the place to sit in judgment on me. And then... In Job 40 and 41, God shows Job two creatures, behemoth and leviathan. Some people say it's like a, a hippo and a crocodile or whatever. No, I think these are creatures from the ancient Near East that were mythological creatures that were symbolic of the disorder and the chaos and the danger that exists in God's world. Maybe, maybe they're dinosaurs, I don't know. But they're a lot like dinosaurs. And the point is, that God is reminding Job the world is good and shows order and beauty, but there is still some things about the world that make it not a safe place. There are chaotic elements that are still at work in the world. There's a picture of those mythical creatures. In Romans 1, which I read earlier, Paul tells us that the creation is telling us about God. But in Romans 8, he tells us that even so creation is not perfect, it's subject to decay. It cries out to be truly itself. And so creation has a dark side. And creation also has realities. You know, the ocean has a certain reality. Several people have died on Mount Baldy this winter. Because Mount Baldy is not a walk in the park. And in the winter, it is treacherous. And if you go up there, you might die. So, the call here is not to become romantics, that just simply see everything as wonderful. Things are wonderful. We need to praise God for them. But there is a reality here. Creation also reminds us that we are part of an ecosystem in which we are not at the top. And when you come face to face with the ocean 
or what would be a modern-day Leviathan, it should put fear in you and remind you and humble you that we are mortal, mere mortals. We are but dust, as Scripture says. So, it requires faith. Faith in the face of darkness. But it also requires faith in a different sense. Faith is used in two primarily different ways. It's used in terms of trust, and we have to trust God in the face of darkness, but it's also used in the sense of seeing something, a way of seeing. Um, By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. That faith there is, is not just trust. It's also, there's a way of seeing the world. It's what philosophers call seeing as. Seeing as. You know, Calvin said, We live in a theater where God's glory is on display. But then later Calvin says, but the way we're going to see it, all this glory, is we have to put on the lenses of Scripture and begin to see the world through the lenses of Scripture, which is, by the way, what we've been doing this morning, right? When we put on those glasses, we begin to see the world rightly. And by the way, that's what this business is about the sun. The sun comes out like a bridegroom, you know, first wedding night. I mean, come on, guys. Comes out of the, you know, wedding chamber. The son's like, yes! Or like a warrior ready. Let's do this. Let's fight. Freedom! Let's go! Is the son really doing that? No. The word as there shows that there is a metaphor here, but it's a metaphor that is going to draw your attention to something which is the strong confidence, the brilliance of the sun. And that asness is a clue for us on how we can begin to see creation rightly. We can see it as creation, the world. The world is, it's, it's, and it's, this is very difficult for us, okay? A little easier for me because I grew up in the Santa Cruz Mountains area, remember? Okay, some of you, you've grown up on screens. You don't even know how to digest natural world. You don't know how to digest God's beauty. A little bit harder for you, maybe. For all of us, it's hard. Because all of us grew up in a post-enlightenment world where you're no longer able to see the world as having enchantment. They're just simply raw datum. They're just simply fact. We are buffered selves that cannot be influenced by powers outside ourselves. And that's why Psalm 19 is so important. You know, Psalm 19, 1 to 6 talks about creation, but in Psalm 19, 7, the psalmist connects the work of this world with the God who's revealed himself in Scripture. And that is the movement that we need. We live in the theater where God's glory is on display. Calvin also says, there's not a spot in the universe where you cannot discern at least some sparks of his glory. By the way, you do not need to be able to go, you know, someplace that you can't go anymore because you can't walk that well. Like, God's glory is on display in the smallest flowers all around us. But it takes a certain kind of seeing, and Scripture can train our eyes to see. The Sami people living in the Arctic areas of Norway, Sweden, and Finland have 180 snow and ice-related words, upward of 300 different words for types of snow, tracks of snow, conditions of snow. You know, when I see snow, I just see snow. That's snow. What is that, snow? Snow. We don't see that very much here. That's snow, though. I, no, that's snow. 
you talk to these Indians, they're like, oh, no, 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 look, look at all the different, look at, don't you see, like, wait, what? See, Scripture is like that. Scripture is meant to help us to develop a robust way of seeing it takes practice. It takes taking a walk on the Mount Wilson Trail and coming across one of those cool little fire belly newts, there's a ton of them in the creek, and they'd be like, Lord, you made this little guy. You made me, you made this little guy. God, you are amazing. Look at this little creature. It is so strange. Talking to God about a newt. Talking to God about cool rocks. Talking to God about everything you see. And by the way, as you begin to see more and more, what begins happening is you begin to hear the voices of creation raise in that giant chorus of praise. I was talking to Scott Nelson before this sermon. You know, Scott Nelson has trained himself to see things. And he's able to hear creation's praise in ways that many of us can't. So how do we grow in our ability to hear creation's praise? Well, we need to do what the psalmist does. We need to begin seeing things as, seeing the son as a champion, as a bridegroom, seeing things as the creation of God, seeing them in all of their glory. But we also need to get off the grid. Me and my wife like to get off the grid. These are all pictures of places we've been, things we've done. We're spoiled here. Southern California, we are spoiled. There are, you know, you can see God's glory in anything, but we have certain places where, I mean, if we use the analogy of like a church, the whole church come together and just singing, there are places that are massive cathedrals of praise that are not very far from here. And even the most deaf can't escape the voices of creation's praise. So we've got to turn off our technology, get off the grid, slow down, and move at a space and place where we can pay attention. We need to begin praying with our eyes open. It's very important to pray with your eyes open. Going on walks with God, talking to God about what you see, praising him for what you see, going where creation is the loudest, you know, Ice House Canyon and Mount Wilson Trail and, oh my gosh, the John Muir Trail. By the way, when I meet people from Colorado, I'm like, you guys got nothing. We, you know, they just never, we just, most have never been on the John Muir Trail. Like, Evolution Valley, unbelievable. Ray Lakes Loop, incredible. So, uh, this is what it's about. This is, this is like Christianity 101. When we get to heaven, what will we be doing? What will we be praising God for? Yeah, we'll be praising him for us, but you know what? When I read in Revelation chapter 4 about the 24 elders who represent the universal people of God, Old and New Testament, this is what they're saying. You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. There is so much for us to learn about experiencing the God who loves us, the God who cares for us, the God that calls us his children by looking with amazement at the glory of God, which is revealed all around us every day. Let's pray. You are worthy, Lord. 
You're worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you are our creator and we are your creation. Lord, everything around us constantly speaks to your goodness, that you constantly give good gifts every day all around. And we pray that just like that kingfisher, that we would live out of a heart that longs to just sing your praise by virtue of the way we live. We pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.